there's something wonderful about that period in our lives when we don't know better. Um, to that's when you take the chance and the risk. And so I didn't know better, um, and I just thought, well, why not? In the 1960s, Norma Kamali took a chance, opening a little clothing store in New York City. For more than five decades, women have been happy that she took that chance. Welcome to Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. It's a podcast all about the journey to success, the early years when that success was by no means guaranteed, the Before the Cheering Started years. Norma Kamali's clothing is worn by famous women and everyday women, all meant to empower women. She grew up in the 1950s as the daughter of Basque and Lebanese parents in a predominantly Irish Catholic neighborhood in New York. The young woman who would one day clothe women around the world desperately wanted to paint. Everything I did was um, geared towards learning about um, painting and learning about the human body and movement of the body. Michelangelo was my god and I had every Michelangelo anything pasted on my wall. And so that training um, really helped me understand clothing on the human body and movement um, and how fabric drapes over the body. So while I really thought that that had to be what I would do, I'm actually grateful that I am able to connect with women and do things for women through my clothes. And the paintings might have been objects that sort of didn't interact physically with human beings. And I like knowing that I'm wrapping myself around people with my clothes. What was the home like growing up in the Yorkville section of New York? And uh, at the risk of asking a question that could elicit uh, probably a, a two hour conversation, uh, what was the inspiration from your mom growing up? Well, my mother was super talented. She could do basically anything. She was a talented painter. She could sew and create costumes uh, very easily with a lot of research and uh, professionalism. She was um, a window uh, display person for Schraffs. Remember Schraffs that they that with the gorgeous cakes and right. he did the window displays in their flagship on Fifth Avenue. Um, she really um, had endless creativity and showed me that um, there's nothing you can't do if you really want to do it. It's just deciding that that's important enough for you to invest time in. And she was really great at business, too. She was very, um, very um, sort of strategic about money and um, and and budgeting. And I, I, I was impressed by that. And what was it like growing up as a kid? Uh, you've told me before, you're growing up predominantly in an Irish Catholic neighborhood of Basque and Lebanese heritage. Uh, 
Not a lot of that around, I would imagine, in your neighborhood growing up. No, uh, I, first of all, I absolutely loved the environment because the Irish are great storytellers, singing and dancing and, you know, a very tight familial environment was really what I grew up in. And I loved my childhood. I, I treasured every minute of it and I still am so grateful. But we were definitely very different. And um, when I would say I was a Lebanese people or Basque, people would say, was oh, that Italian? And I'd say, yeah, I guess. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was it was too hard to describe. I mean, um, and and you know what? I think um, one of the things my mother did was she um, she didn't speak. Um, Spanish to my father. She spoke Spanish. She didn't speak Spanish to my father, and she didn't speak Arabic to her sisters when we were around so that my brother and I could assimilate and be a part of the culture. And she felt that that was very important for us to be a part of the world we were living in. And while I, I really do appreciate it, I think it was a great advantage um, to making our our language English in the first language. But I do, you know, I have a feeble approach to Spanish, and I can't even begin to speak Arabic. So I, I sort of wish that I would have had that. But I, I think it was very important, especially in the 50s, to be a part of the environment, be a part of everything. And sometimes language can separate people and isolate them. Yeah. So as you're growing up in the 50s in that neighborhood and, and your mom and then your mom as a single mom, what are the lessons that are specifically taught that are said out loud to you? And then what are the lessons that are unspoken but are clear as you're growing up? Well, I think the lesson that was clear is that, and that my mother made made sure I understood, is that a woman should learn to be independent and to be able to support herself and support her family, and that that is not something that we just expect men to do, that we should be able to do that ourselves. And then the unspoken was that my mother saw no limit to what she could do and she saw no um no barriers she never ever talked about women can't do this or can't do that she she never saw life that way and um and, and her her sense of adventure into things that she hadn't done before or e even till her last years was something that she just enjoyed and was a part of her personality. So I was really lucky to, to, to have that as an example. Mm -hmm. You told me once a story as in terms of being in the neighborhood that, uh, you once told me that everyone else's nose was turned up and mine was not. And, and what you did to try to right. change that, shall we say? So it, it's very interesting um, for a woman. 
we often um, judge ourselves by what we see others, you know, the others. So at the time, television was minimal and fashion magazines were non-existent. There were, there were, you know, sort of celebrity magazines, but not something we would look at. So I would look at the girls in the neighborhood as examples, and we all did. My age group would look at the age group older, and we would like, oh, if we could only look like that. And they were all these incredibly gorgeous Irish girls that, I mean, I don't, it, uh, you can only appreciate this if you grow up in an Irish neighborhood where the skin and the hair and the and just everything was like wow this is so beautiful and then me <laughs> and i'm and nobody nobody had a nose everybody had sort of this little thing this little cute thing and gorgeous <laughs> curly hair and blue eyes and just bow lips and i started to feel that I didn't look as pretty as they looked. And the ideal of pretty was what I was seeing. I wasn't seeing any other options for pretty because neighborhoods were very isolated at the time. And like I said, we didn't have social media or other influences. And so I, my objective was to sleep with my nose turned up on the pillow, hoping that I'd wake up in the morning and that my nose would stop growing and would grow up. But obviously, as you can see, <laughs> it did not go, it didn't go well for me. But in the end, um, through a lot of learning about my own personal self-esteem and how I feel about myself, I would never change anything. I'm, I'm my own unique self, and I try to mentor and teach younger girls and to talk about being your unique self. Nobody else, nobody else can be that. So why not be the best of something unique than like everybody else? And so, you know, the nose is here. The whole thing is still, you know, it is what it is. And, and I'm quite comfortable with it. Um, you graduate from high school and you go off to Fashion Institute of Technology. Yes. And so at that point, what's the dream? What's the goal? Well, at this point, my mother has had a great influence over my decisions about being a painter. And um, while I was lucky enough to get scholarships for not only for painting, but to FIT, um, I decided to use F the opportunity FIT and continue doing life drawing and take fashion illustration instead. And as Fate would have it, I had the most incredible instructor at FIT, a woman by the name of Anna Ishikawa. And she was, she could never teach in any school in this time we live in because she was so 
intimidating in her pursuit of us all understanding the importance of excellence. So there were many teary moments in the class because people couldn't take the criticism and couldn't take the intensity of what she expected. And I am forever grateful for having that understanding of what excellence means and how to achieve it. And that was a really great experience. But of course, um, I think there came a period where her style and what the world would accept kind of parted ways. But I'm so happy that I was able to have her influence. It worked for you. It definitely worked for me. So how do you go from FIT to the years in the mid-60s when you're going to London seemingly every weekend? How does that come about? Well, my, um, my experience in my first job interview was really um, very, very difficult because I had an interview in the garment center and I remember preparing for it and preparing what I was going to wear. I wanted to be very professional. And my mother kept saying, you better get this job. You better get this job because, I'm, you know, you got you to gotta pay your way here. And I was like, okay, I better get this job. And I remember going into this guy's office and he had his feet up on his desk and he's eating a tuna sandwich. And he says, why don't you put your portfolio down over there and come here and turn around for me? And I was so overwhelmed. First of all, he was the power in the room. I definitely wanted that job. So I turned around and as I did, I just was so humiliated and embarrassed that I decided as I'm crying um, to take my portfolio and run out. And I only, I don't even know if I told you this story, but I've only been able to tell this story recently because it was so devastating that I remember telling my mother I didn't get the job because I was so embarrassed that I turned around. I, that's so not my moral kind of, mm -hmm composure and here I am doing this. So I decided I'm going to look in the New York Times, which is where you could go to the classified to get a job. And I saw a job opening in reservations at Northwest Orient Airlines. And I had absolutely zero office skills. And I don't know how I got the job. Believe me, I was so not qualified, but before I knew it, I was sitting behind a computer, a UNIVAC computer at Northwest Airlines, and every weekend for $29 round trip, I was in London, and guess what was happening in London? This big revolution was just starting. I saw it slowly, and for four years, every weekend, for three days, I would be in London. And you grew up in New York City, and yet you talk about you grew up in a neighborhood. So all of a sudden, not that many years later, you're, if not traveling the world, you're traveling to one of the most cosmopolitan cities of the world. 
Are there moments during it, even after you got accustomed to it of, wow, how did this happen? You know, I, I don't think, um, I just think that I felt myself pulled to do, to do this. And I, I wasn't afraid at all. I mean, I was, you know, 17, 18, um, you know, um, I was very young and I was traveling, um, not only to London, but I would do trips to Paris. When I was in London, there was a plane called the Trident and the Trident would go up and down like that. It was a very unique plane and it would go to Paris in the shortest amount of time. So I would take the Trident, go to Paris for a couple of hours and then go back to London. And so, and I would travel, I went to Iran, I went to Greece, I went to lots of different places, but I felt so excited about what was happening in London. I knew there was something very different happening and I felt so connected to it as a baby boomer versus what the fashion was and everything prior to this new kind of change in our culture. And that change just was so perfect for me. And um, and I still feel very, very, very connected to London. Every time I go, I feel, oh, I could live here. This is this is home base for me. And even the kind of clothes I design are in character very much like the Brits. It's, it's sort of conservative, but a little eccentric at the same time. And that's really, to me, the Brits, right? They're a little, but then they're a little wacky, a little <laughs> thing, you know, you don't expect it, but there it is. And so I have a real comfort zone with traveling and I have a real comfort zone with computers as a result of that job and also um, with the idea of being in a place that I connected to in a time that was a revolution. It was a revolution musically, it was a revolution as far as fashion was concerned. What tangible effect did it have on you from a fashion sense? And, and how was that journey in trying to bring that fashion sense back to New York as you would come back every week? Well, the long-term effect of that was that I, um, I have internally um, the spirit that anything, anything goes and that thinking out of the box and being innovative is my comfort zone. Uh, and that was what was the time. And so I felt that intuitively, and I still feel that way. Um, I think the idea of, of having that freedom to express myself, not only identified who I was when I started my own collection back then, but it affects it now. When I started the store, I brought back clothes that I found in London. So there were the store Biba and Bus Stop and Antiquarius, which was a 
great vintage place, uh, big vintage, more than a place, it was stalls and sort of a, a place you had to be and had to see and everybody that was anybody was there from Jimi Hendrix to everyone buying things and putting unique outfits together. So I would bring those back and I opened a, a little basement store for $285 a month and started selling those things. And then eventually um, I started to design things that I felt should be next. And, um, and I was really lucky because those things got a lot of attention right away. Um, and certainly not by me promoting them because I, I hardly knew what I was doing. I thought sooner or later <laughs> I'm going to get found out and people will know that I don't know what the hell I'm doing. But um, so I was encouraged very early by the attention my clothes were getting and it gave me the confidence to stick to it and and think of it as an as a possible opportunity for me before you have the store you start coming back and seeing the styles that are that are now popular in great britain shorter skirts uh how'd that go over back in new york initially well, um, so you, they have to put this in perspective. Prior to London and what was happening in London, and it was just at the beginning, right? In the history of women's clothing, skirts on the street in public places were never above the knee, never. So in London, skirts were mid-thigh, mid-thigh. That's a lot above the knee. Now, <laughs> you have to understand that didn't just affect showing the knee, but undergarments were quite different. Women wore garter belts and stockings. So you couldn't wear a short skirt with garter belts and stockings because you'd see the garter belt, you'd see the stockings. So not only did this shorter length disrupt the visual, but it meant undergarments had to be different too. And so here I was coming back with these skirts mid-thigh and literally cars would screech to a halt and people would yell out like terrible things. And I would say to myself, they just don't know. They just don't know. And then my friends, of course, all wanted to have the clothes. And so that was sort of, oh, bring that back, bring that back. And that's how I started to bring things back. This is Before the Cheering Started. I'm Bud Mishkin. Norma Kamali came back from her trips to Great Britain with a dream. Only a few years out of high school, she wanted to open up a clothing store in New York. Having a dream is great, but how do you sell such a risky proposition to your single mom? Well, you know, my mother always was supportive, but she was also a mother who wanted to be sure that I didn't make any mistakes. And I, I think the idea of doing this uh, was influenced by her ability to just say, I'm going to do whatever I feel strongly about. And, and that was what I decided. I really, really want to do this. 
and I'm going to figure out a way to do it. And I didn't, I, I have to say, ignorance is bliss. When you're young, you really, you know, you don't know what you don't know. So to me, I can do this. I was like, I can do this. This is going to be easy. I had my $80 a week job at the airlines and I, I can make this work. And I was fearless, not only about travel, but about the fact that I thought that I could sell these clothes. And then I was fearless about, well, I have an idea. I'm going to make I'm going to make styles that I don't see anywhere that I think would be really great. And I think the there's something wonderful about that period in our lives when we don't know better. Um, to that's when you take the chance and the risk. And so I didn't know better. Um, and I just thought, well, why not? I can do this. And I didn't, you know, you're too dumb to figure out the downside and what you can, what can go wrong. And obviously at my age, I didn't have a lot of responsibilities. So if something went wrong, that's the best time for for it to happen, right? Right. So the whole notion of this podcast is before the cheering started, is there a moment early on after you've created the store and are starting to create styles when you start to have the notion of, oh, oh something's going on here and I, I think I've got something here? Yeah. Well, yeah, I like I mentioned before, the fact that people were actually paying for clothes that I was making was just shocking to me. Like, oh my God, they're actually spending their money on it. And I'm certainly not thinking they should spend as much as they were. So at 19, I got married. And so my husband at the time was a student and he was at Columbia and he would sell the clothes and make the prices. And he didn't know what he was doing, but he had the idea that, and he was very charming and handsome. So he would put a price on it and I'd say, no, you cannot do that. That's just too much. And I would feel so embarrassed that he was charging so much for my clothes. I would have been happy to pay people <laughs> to wear them. And he was actually wanting them to pay money for them. Yeah, I've never gone to business school, but uh, I think I know that that's probably not a wise business no. arrangement. Here, I'm going to pay you to wear my clothes. But I, I, because I just couldn't, I couldn't believe that they were spending more money than I could spend on anything for something I made. Um, and then obviously I began to understand if I need to buy more fabric, I need to have the money. From, so I learned that very quickly because I always wanted more fabric and I wanted to be able to hire people to build a sample room. And so I learned very quickly that in order to make more, you have to sell what you're making and it should be at the price that that item actually cost mm -hmm. and and that's a big learning experience It's probably the learning experience that most young designers don't really understand and make mistakes at 
what they charge or how to actually figure out the price of, of uh, a garment to, to sell. And like I said, I, I mentor um, younger designers and I see that that's one of the topics that I, I know I need to spend time on. Uh, is there a, a first uh, notion or a, a memory of being out and seeing someone wearing something that you had designed? Well, um, yes, and, and a lot of it, I ended up being celebrities for some reason. But I remember um, maybe like 12 years ago, or maybe I could be off by a few years. I remember it was a beautiful sunny day, and it was early, and I was walking down the street, and there weren't a lot of people and I saw this girl probably like 17 or 18 years old coming towards me wearing this incredible skirt and I looked at it and I thought oh my god that is amazing and I was just look at the way it moves it's really fantastic and the closer she got I had chills because it was the very first skirt anything I ever made and it was all hand whip stitch suede the very first very first and I looked at her walk by me and I remember standing there feeling like whoa chills I'm feeling it now as I say as I tell you it and I remember thinking how incredible that skirt has probably gone through maybe two incarnations. And somebody bought it in the 60s. Um, they probably either sold it, gave it away, somebody else wore it. And this girl had to be the next generation that is actually wearing it again. and. I, I realized how incredible that is, that one piece of clothing can share a life experience with different people through different decades. But I was so excited to see that. It, you know, I like seeing people in my clothes, I really do. But, and I didn't, I didn't feel that I should stop her and say something because I, that was a little creepy if I would have, but I was really so moved by it. Norma Kamali is not known for one particular genre or line of clothing, but among her calling cards, she's credited with helping to launch a 1980s clothing cultural phenomenon for women, the shoulder pad. Shoulder pads um, have had several redos and there is a semi sort of shoulder pad period now um i there was a period where i and and i believe i influenced other women to even layer shoulder pads which was really scary um, <laughs> and so i look at that period as hmm, maybe not my very best moment in fashion history 
but um, but it lasted a, a while, and um, and I wore them for that period of time, and I enjoyed it. And I think um, there was there's a, a historical content to it. I think a lot of it had to do with women uh, in uh, sort of post another feminist movement where women were feeling their power in the workplace and men's suits and the shoulder pad kind of the power suit and that feeling. Also, I was referring to classic films where shoulder pads were a, a dominant theme for a period of time. But I think a lot of it had to do with women's power and an early kind of beginning of it and a, and a bold statement of it. Um, and it was after a big feminist push that um, happened in the 70s into the early 80s. Hmm. You know, your, again, your clothing is worn all over the world and beloved all over the world uh, and is a, a symbol, as you said, of women's empowerment. And the piece that is in the Smithsonian is a bathing suit uh, worn by a person who at the time, arguably top most top 10 most famous Americans uh, in the 70s, Farrah Fawcett Majors. What was the impact of uh, seeing that bathing suit on that poster that that was on many a college dorm wall? Let's put it that way. And it still has a long memory. I mean, so. Farrah Fawcett was a really good customer. Um, she was a great shopper and she had a lot of my clothes and uh, she bought lots of swimsuits and I didn't always meet her when she was shopping. There were things she bought and I didn't even know she bought, but there was this swimsuit that I designed and tested in the store, which I did uh, for a lot of styles. I would do six pieces and see how it sold and how it fit people. And that particular suit, um, I actually hated. I hated the <laughs> fit. I hated the fit of it. I thought, that's it. I'm not doing this suit again because I just uh, it's not right. So when the poster came out, and I had no idea she bought the suit, and I saw of all the suits that could be on this poster, the suit that I absolutely hated was on there. And I thought that's unbelievable that that would happen. But of course, the swimsuit did not have anything to do with the power of that poster, her beauty, her her smile, she was the least intimidating woman. She was sort of the friendly girl next door who wasn't going to make any guy feel less important because of her beauty. And so her smile and her beauty and that sort of friendly face that men absolutely loved and felt they could she could possibly be somebody they date, um, surpassed anything that my swimsuit had to do with that poster. 
So I, I did find it funny that they wanted my approval to put it in the Smithsonian. And I, I, I did ask, would it be okay if I made a new version of that? And they said, mm -hmm. absolutely not. So I could not even in the end <laughs> do a better version of it. But um, so I'm very complimented and she was an incredible woman. She was delightful. She was exactly what you felt in that poster, just the friendliest, sweetest person. Hmm. Now, Norma, you've been at this for some time. And one thing I've always admired is how you are really in the present and uh, incorporating new things. You've mentioned your facility with the computer and how you, you're known for that as well as this technological age has taken place. Uh, and you're still at it and still moving forward. How much do those early years, both at home and then the, the early years in that first store, how much do they inform what you're doing now? Well, I mean, yeah, I think everybody's history sort of is like a building block to where you have to go and you can't pull it out because then everything falls apart. So all of those early years um, helped me define what my authentic self is, right? And it's important to, and I say this to, to a lot of young designers also, it's important to understand what your authentic self is and what is unique about what you do and different from what everybody else does. So at the, my beginnings, I understood, I learned what it was that I do and what my authentic self was so that I could build on that and not worry about trends and being like everybody else, that I could have that self sense of self. It's just like my nose, right? This is it. This is, this is my nose. This is what I'm dealing with. And you know what? I'm going to make the best of it. So early on, I learned this is who I am. This is what I do. Um, it's what makes me unique. And so I don't change that, even though trends come and go. I stay true to myself and offer my unique sense of style. Um, and 55 years later, obviously that being authentic is helpful for longevity. Norma Kamali still creating after more than 50 years. And while she has a rich past, she doesn't live in it. She's considered one of the first designers to embrace technology. For her latest collections and styles, you can go to normakamali.com. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing? That's me too. No extra charge. The episode was edited by Lou Pellegrino. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey.